Good morning. Okay, you guys are sounding kind of rough, okay? The 8.30 service sounded louder than you. They'd had no coffee, no sleep. Good morning. morning. There we go. Yeah. Uh, We are, my name is Dave Patchen, uh, and we are in the second week of our series that we're doing this July called My Favorite Verse. Uh, Last week, Mark brought a great message on the Great Commission, uh, and this week you get to hear from me and Donnie. Uh, Some of you don't know me. Uh, I'm the executive pastor here. And uh, most of you, that doesn't mean very much. That uh, doesn't mean much to me sometimes either. But I'm that guy that uh, all the stuff that pastors normally aren't good at and don't like to do, budgets, accountability, strategic planning, uh, building, building, sign, uh, selling buildings, all that kind of stuff, that's all the stuff that I get to do. And every now and then I get to preach. Uh, so that's the exciting part for me. Uh, hopefully not so bad for you by the end of the morning. But uh, a couple, couple months ago, Donnie came and said, we're doing this series, My Favorite Verse. I want you to do one. Pick any verse you want, anywhere in the Bible, anything at all you want to talk about, just go ahead and preach whatever you want. Sounds pretty easy, right? And then I started thinking. Okay, I got to say, what's my favorite verse? And I've been a believer a long time, and there's been a lot of verses I've really liked, a lot of verses that meant a lot to me. It's like really hard to pick your favorite. And then I thought, well, I'll just kind of read through the highlights in my Bible, and I realized, is it really right as a pastor to say this verse is more better for me than another? I mean, they're all inspired. They're all God's word. I mean, it kind of feels like I'm picking and choosing. and There's 300,000 to choose from. So I started to get a little nervous about this. And then I remembered this guy back in college. He told me, you should never highlight in your Bible. I didn't know why. Why should I not highlight? I wonder if there's some kind of toxic chemical that would make it, you know, fade away or something. He said, because when you do that, you're telling God that the verses you didn't highlight aren't good. <laughs> never highlight because they're all good no matter what you think of them. And I thought, man, am I judging scripture? Am I becoming that guy? So I started to panic. I didn't think I could pick anything. And I called Donnie. I said, Donnie, I don't think I could do this. And he talked me off the ledge and he said, relax. Doesn't have to be your favorite. Just pick a verse about what God is speaking to you in your life right now. My favorite verse today. Like, okay, well, that's a little easier. But I started thinking about what's God working on in my life. And mostly it's like, you know, a lot of verses that I like, but I can't preach on because I, you know, just, It's not going to work for me. And others, it's like what he's working on in my life. It better fits in the series we're planning for January called My Favorite Sin. So I was getting a little uptight. You know, as the pastors were playing in that series, we realized um, that's going to be a tough one to preach, so we're going to have all guest speakers for that series. (laughs) None of us will be getting up and sharing. Some of you, may I call on some of you, so be ready. Be ready. But as I started to think about this, I wanted to share one of my favorite verses. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been stuck on a teaching that you looked at and you thought, man, that just doesn't seem right? You read something that God said in the Word or something that Jesus said and you think, yeah, I don't know. Or if you've walked with God for any length of time, you ever come to the place where it's like, man, what God says doesn't seem to be working in my life right now. It doesn't seem to be coming true. You ever been in a place like that? I've been there a couple of times. And if if you haven't, then you just haven't walked with the Lord long enough. Eventually there's going to come a point where you realize that Things don't always seem to go exactly the way I might anticipate that God would have them to go. And sometimes uh, as we get to the scriptures, God does some really surprising things. I don't know about you. Have you ever played this game? I've done this every now and then. You kind of read a passage and you get to the highlight tension point of here's the problem. Then you kind of just stop. You say, okay, if I were Jesus, what would I do? And you kind of plan out, here's what I would do. and Here's the way it goes. And then you get to read the rest of the passage and find out that Jesus didn't do anything like you would imagine he would have done. You ever done that? Life group leaders, if you're leading Bible study, that is an awesome technique to generate lots of intense discussion. It is really exciting to see that happen. 
But sometimes, if we've been around for a while, we read these stories and we kind of just kind of gloss over them because we become so familiar, we forget how shocking some of them can be. And I want to share with you a passage this morning that to me is really, really shocking. Um, it's not what it, I expect Jesus to do, or maybe it would be not what you expect either. But before I tell you the verse, you need to understand the context, because if I just tell you the verse, you're just going to think, wow, he's just weird. That's a weird verse to pick. And I think you'll probably think I'm weird by the end anyway, but I'd like to hide it for a little while longer. So um, I want to share with you the verse. So if the ushers would come down, we're going to be in John chapter 6. So if the ushers would come forward, we have the Bibles. We'd love to give you a Bible. If you need one, just raise your hand as the ushers in front of you. We'll give that to you. That's our gift to you. Feel free to keep it. If you just want to borrow it for the service, you can take it and turn it back in at the end. That's fine too. But if you want one, we'd love to give you a Bible because we think that's important. So as we turn in the scripture to John chapter 6, uh, we're going to take a look at what Christ had in a very difficult teaching, a passage where he says some things that are really shocking and surprising to me. Now, in context, uh, so you can understand why this is my favorite verse, you have to know where we're going. Pastor Rob taught a few weeks back in our teacher series about the bread of life discourse, where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Now, to understand what's going on there, he's been out in the, in the wilderness. They had no food for lunch. There's 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children, and he takes five loaves and two fishes, and he breaks them, and everybody eats, and they have 12 baskets left over, okay? Amazing miracle. Everybody's fed. It's kind of, I'm sure the word is getting around that Jesus has done this. And so people are starting to show up, and they want to see more, okay? And Jesus is teaching, and the people start coming. So in uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse 30, it says this. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And Jesus has been teaching them that they need to believe in him, but they're starting to say, hey, give us a sign, give us a sign. Well, he already gave him a sign. He already fed 5,000, but Jesus began to realize they're just there for the miracles. They just want a sideshow. They just maybe want a free meal. Uh, and they're not really getting what he's telling them. And they're basically screaming, give us bread, give us bread, give us bread. So Jesus gives them bread. He says this in John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And this is what Rob talked about in his message a couple weeks back, that Christ is sufficient for us. But they don't seem to get it. So he goes on, he says, for I have come down from heaven, verse 38, Come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is teaching them, you want bread, I'm the bread of life. Come to me, I can satisfy you and I'll raise you up on the last day. And the crowd begins to grumble. They're not seeing the force for the trees. And they're grumbling, how can he say that he came from heaven? You know, they're kind of looking at each other. Doesn't, didn't Jesus come from Nazareth? Don't you know his mom? I know his brother. How could he say he came from heaven? He's from Nazareth. I don't get this. So Jesus is trying to help them understand. He begins to elaborate a little bit. And he compares himself in the passage to when Israel was wandering the desert before they went into the promised land 1,400 years earlier. And he says, just like you got manna from heaven, Every day they would wake up and there would be bread or manna on the ground that they could pick up and eat and be satisfied. And he says, just like there was manna from heaven, I'm the bread of life. And even though your forefathers got manna and ate it, they still died. But if you feed on me, you're going to live forever. And this doesn't have the desired effect. The crowd actually starts to argue amongst themselves about what he means. You know, think of it. This is a rough day teaching in the synagogue. Jesus is teaching. And imagine if like an argument broke out over here about what I just said. I mean, that's a rough day teaching in synagogue. You know, as teachers, sometimes you have those moments where 
you, you kind of look at people and they kind of got that glassy-eyed stare. You know, the military, they call it the thousand-yard you know, thousand stare. The lights are on, but there is just nobody home. Okay, some of you are giving me that look right now. It's making me a little nervous. But I can relate. Jesus is teaching and they're not getting it. And so it's kind of this unruliness and they're struggling. So you think, well, what should Jesus do? How should he solve the situation? You know, maybe he just needs to explain some more. You know, help them really understand. Or maybe he needs to turn to the 12 and say, hey, what, what, what's going on? Why are they not getting this? What am I missing? What do I need to say to help them connect? Maybe he just needs to pray and say, Father, help them understand. Or maybe he just, you know, needs to end it before it gets any worse. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He continues on, and he says this in verse 53 of John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now, that wasn't what I was expecting. You see, not only is he saying he's the bread of life, which could be taken metaphorically, he kind of goes even way more literal, and he says, you've got to eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. Surely that is not the message that Jesus wants to teach. You know, kind of reminds me of like a, 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 van, a zombie movie. Right? I'm a big fan of zombie movies. Anybody? Anybody like zombie movies? I like the great ones. I like the medium ones. I like the terrible ones where you have bad actors running around. There's just nothing going on but people chasing people, pretending to be zombies. I, I love them all. And I don't know why there's something twisted about me that really likes when, you know, people who are normal, seemingly normal one day, become evil and undead and try to eat you. There's something... Something about that appeals to me. I, I don't know. I'll probably be in therapy about that later on. But I like zombie movies. I really do. But this is different. This isn't where the bad people try to eat you. Jesus is saying, if you want to have eternal life, you have to feed on me. You know, and I don't know what they were thinking, but this could not possibly have been what the audience wanted to hear. Certainly could not possibly be something they would understand. You know, so you kind of want to jump in and help them and say, hey, Jesus, you know, could you soften this up a little bit? I mean, could you say, hey, I know you don't really understand this, but trust me, it gets better. Or, hey, I know you're going to struggle, but you can have eternal life. Don't, really, come on back tomorrow. I'll explain more tomorrow. Just come on back. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just kind of drops this bombshell and says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. You won't have eternal life. And sometimes we have too much familiarity with the scripture and we, we forget just how shocking this would have been to the audience. You know, things were getting a little bit tense and you're kind of hoping that Jesus will diffuse it and he doesn't diffuse it at all. He actually kind of makes it worse. He just blows it up. It's like the nuclear option in teaching. It's like, yeah, you're not getting it, so boom. Let me throw that in there. It seems like he just makes it worse. And not only does he say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he says it three times in three verses, so they couldn't have missed it, couldn't possibly miss it. And it's messy and confusing and creepy, and it seems kind of absurd, and you kind of think, Jesus, they, they have to be misunderstanding you. Could you help them out? Could you explain a little bit more? Because you think, Jesus, don't you want them to know your true heart, that you love them, and don't you want them to not think you're just some kind of creepy weirdo? This is the type of response you the crowd must be having when they say, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Are you kidding me? I came for a meal, but not that meal. So in verse 60, we get the crowd's response. It says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and what he's saying sounds crazy. 
you know, you're thinking if he's, maybe if he's out in the outside, you know, they think, oh, he's got a little heat stroke. He probably didn't mean that. Or maybe if, you know, it was a big crowd, like you probably didn't hear him correctly. It was probably hard to hear a lot of crowd noise. And if someone had told me, hey, this is what Jesus was teaching, I'd go, ah, what I know of Jesus, I think you got that wrong. That doesn't sound like him. But that's exactly what he said. And many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He's losing folks and they don't understand. They aren't following him. They're literally walking away. They've, they've wanted to be followers of him. They wanted to emulate him. But they hear this and they turn back, no longer following him. And in uh, the pastoral ministry, we call this the ministry of subtraction rather than addition. If you're subtracting from the flock by getting a few to go away, Jesus might be down to uh, the ministry of division where he's just dividing the crowds into much, much smaller numbers. You know, if you're looking at this passage, you have to think, clearly Jesus hasn't heard how to grow a church in the 20th century, okay? You know, the consultants that will come by and tell you how to grow a church. Yeah, Jesus, if you want a bigger crowd, um, you kind of kind of do a lot of feel-good sermons. Miracles are always good, especially the positive kind. Stay away from hard topics like sin and judgment. Heaven, heaven's good. It's trending on Twitter right now. Um, Focus on the positive stuff. You know, avoid all that sin discussion. People don't want to feel negative emotions, so keep it light and tell people their lives are going to be better and easier and more fun, okay? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't avoid the challenging topic. In fact, when they're confused, he powers right into it. And when they don't understand, he doesn't explain And for me, the most difficult part is he doesn't even chase after those who left. He knows they're going away. He knows they don't understand. He knows they don't really grasp what he means. He's trying to build a worldwide movement of people that believe in him and experience God in a new way and get eternal life and their lives transformed. He's trying to build a worldwide movement that will affect everybody. And yet he's letting them go. So if you're the disciples, the 12 who are his closest friends, the men who have left everything to follow him. They've given up careers and homes and family and they're traveling around trying to be like Jesus, help bring the kingdom of God to earth. You wonder what they're thinking. And you know, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. Sometimes when he had a tough teaching, he would kind of pull the 12 aside later and explain it to them. Like earlier when he talked about um, that it's more difficult uh, for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And you go, camel can't go through an eye of a needle. So the disciples are like, Jesus, is that what it really means? Is that what you're saying? He goes, hey, listen, okay, what I'm telling you is that God and money, okay, very difficult. You can't serve two of them. You have to choose. And rich people oftentimes love money. And if you love money too much, you can't love God. But remember, with God, all things are possible. So you can let go of your love of money and come into the kingdom. So they realize, okay, rich people, it's tough, but they can get there. He's not saying they'll never get there. But he did that in private. In this situation, we don't have anything from the scripture that would indicate that Jesus lets the disciples off the hook at all. Arguably, they need to understand what he is saying here more than any other place when he gives a difficult teaching, and they don't get it. They don't understand. And it wouldn't be for another year until the night before he died that he would actually bring them to the place where they might understand. And I want to jump over there so you understand what he's doing. In Luke chapter 22 Starting in verse 15, Jesus is having the Passover supper with, his, with the 12. And the Passover is a celebration of how they got out of Egypt. The final plague that God brought on Egypt so that Pharaoh would say, go, was, was a plague of death. And the Jews, in order to experience, to avoid the plague, they, would, they took a, a lamb, 
and they sacrificed it and they took the blood and they painted it on their doorpost and then they roasted the lamb and they ate unleavened bread and that was the meal. And the celebration was a lot about the meal. But the meal symbolized that they're trusting God and the blood on the doorpost was what meant the angel of death would pass over them, thus the name Passover, so that they could experience life. And if they didn't have blood on the door, all the Egyptians had their firstborn son killed that night. And that's finally what makes Pharaoh let go. So they celebrate this as Passover, that God protected them and got them out of slavery in Egypt. So this is what Jesus says in, in Luke twenty-two fifteen. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So it's only till we get to the Passover, and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that they begin to realize, ah, the bread of Passover, the blood, uh, the cup, Passover, do this in remembrance of me. I am the sacrificial lamb, that I'm going to die in your place, that you, by my blood, might be set free from the slavery of sin. 1 Corinthians 5.7 puts it this way, for Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. So it isn't until a year or so later that they might actually begin to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So let's go back to John chapter 6. Jesus gives them none of this discussion, okay? They don't get this till the last night he's on earth. Here, they don't understand. So what does Jesus say to them? Verse 67 in John 6. As everybody's walking out the door, he looks at the 12 and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? You do not want to leave too, do you? This is the moment of truth for the 12. You can imagine it's probably very uncomfortable for them. What would you say? yeah, Jesus, I'm all good with that teaching on eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Like, when does that start? What would you say? How can you accept this monstrous teaching and keep on following him? How would you respond? Here's my favorite verse. To that question, this is my favorite verse. And Simon Peter says this in verse 68, 69 of John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter answers the question with a question, and it's a big one. You want to know if we want to leave? To whom are we going to go? Who are we going to go to? Peter doesn't say, yeah, we like this teaching. We're in. This is all good. We got it. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm I'm totally comfortable with this. He doesn't say, but I think they're probably feeling, yeah, I want to go too. I don't understand. But where are we going to go? Who are we going to go to? You know, sometimes when we run into difficult things or difficult problems in our life, we have our ways of escaping and running away from God. Sometimes it's just escapism. You know, anything that can take us away from our experiences or difficulty or pain, things like movies or novels or games or entertainment, we just kind of pile on all the escapism to escape from what we perceive to be the difficulties of our reality. Other times we run to addiction. Anything that's going to numb the pain and frustration in our life, whether it be sex or alcohol or drugs, pornography, we just 
do anything so that we don't feel what we're feeling. Sometimes we run to anger, and that's my favorite. We drink from our prepackaged ideas of what life and walking with Jesus should be, and when our experiences don't match up with that, we find our lives lacking, and that makes us mad. And anger becomes our shield to kind of blunt the force of our disappointment with God. And sometimes we run to pity. We wallow in our disappointment and invite everyone to join us in our misery and we pretend that we're just hurt, but the reality is we take that real pain and we turn it into judgment against God and his character. Our pity screams, God is not good to me. And we demand that others feel pity for us and join us in judging God, saying, God, you're not good. Our pity is our self-confident declaration, I don't deserve this question is, what do we really deserve? And who are we going to go to? Because if you spend any time walking with God over a period of time, you and the people close to you will eventually end up in some storms. They're going to knock you for a loop. Where are you going to go when you're falsely accused? Who are you going to run to when you lose that job for no reason or your business goes under? Who are you going to go to when your spouse says, I'm done, it's over, I want out? Where are you going to go when the tests come back and the doctors tell you the words that you've been fearing that you might hear? Had some friends this past year in the fall, their 21-year-old son uh, wasn't feeling well and he went to the doctor and they found out that he had acute leukemia. And after six grueling rounds of chemo to try to knock out his leukemia, he caught just a regular old bug. And in a couple hours, he went from a low fever to ICU. And over the course of a few weeks, that infection just ravaged his body because he had no defense due to the chemo. And after a number of weeks in ICU, he died. Three days before their daughter was getting married. Their son, Ian, died. Where are you going to go when your son dies? Four years ago, almost to the week, I sat with a mom and I had to say to three teenagers who had rushed home because they'd heard there'd been an accident. And when they got home, we had to tell them that the father that they loved, who'd been a great father to them, a man of God, he'd been an elder in the church, he'd taught, he was great with finances, he'd equipped them well for life, he was a man of faith, he was a great encourager, had done tons of ministry, been a huge encouragement, led all kinds of ministries, had worked alongside me for a decade. And I had to tell them that somehow their father got twisted up and confused and messed up in his faith and he'd taken his own life that very day. Where are you going to go when your father killed himself? Truth is, God is still right there with you. He's still right there. He's still right here. He's waiting, waiting for us to see him as he really is. Because there's one thing, if you write down one thing today, I want you to write down this. To know God fully, we have to let go of the fantasies of who we want God to be for the reality of who God is. We have to let go of the fantasies of who we want God to be and embrace the reality of who God is. That's what the disciples had to do. That's what they had to face. They had to realize that Jesus wasn't their puppet. That Jesus wasn't always going to be easy to get along with. They weren't always going to understand. There were going to be difficult times. And sometimes others are going to walk away. And they had to make a choice. Had to make a choice. 
C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about this in the Chronicles of Narnia when the children are first going to meet Aslan the lion who represents Christ in that allegory. And they ask, he's a lion? Is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And sometimes we have to brace the reality that God is not safe. Difficult things are going to come and he has other agendas that don't always line up with our comfort. And if we're going to accept this teaching, we have to know and not just go for the miracles. We've got to take the whole package, even when we don't like the whole package. Because sometimes Jesus isn't the sterilized, homogenized, sanitized, or tame teacher that we think he is. We have to change our view of God. You see, Peter got it. When asked, where will you go? He said, where, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter understood that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Word of God, God incarnate, the Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's everything. And he had to understand that Christ was willing to pay the penalty for our sin, that he actually substituted himself and died on a cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could have forgiveness. We could have a restored relationship with God. We could, he could become the firstborn from among the dead of many brothers, and it's because of him that we have forgiveness. We've exchanged our failures, small and great. We get cleansing and new life and eternal life, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we have the power to change, and we're able to please God for the first time in our lives. And apart from Jesus, we have no hope, no forgiveness, no mercy, no grace, no life, no power, nothing. Peter and the 12 knew that. They knew they had no place else to go because Jesus had the words of eternal life. So how are we going to apply this today? Well, I think we can apply this by looking at one other thing that Jesus said to the 12, and that's this. In John 14, verse 6 and 7, Jesus, when asked the question, said this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Because if we understand, if you don't know, even when you don't know whether all of Jesus' words are true, if we're confident that he is the truth, then it can be okay. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to be sure about everything. You don't have to have all the pieces put together in a way that fits for you if you know he is the truth. We don't have to know the specific path we are on as long as we know that Jesus is the way. You don't have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't have to know how to answer that decision. You don't have to be able to know where you're going to be in a year, five years, ten years, fifteen years. You don't have to know what's going to happen with your children if you know that Jesus is the way. And we don't have to know exactly how to live if we know that Jesus is our life. You don't have to know what you have to do. You don't have to know where to turn. You don't have to know what will happen next. If you can trust that Jesus is the life that we are seeking, then living with him can be enough. Because it gives us hope and eternal life. Now, how do you apply this? Men and women, I want to tell you, you can't get to that place in your relationship with Christ simply by coming Sunday morning for 60 minutes. It, we just... We don't have the ability in 60 minutes to give you all that you need to walk through those deep waters like my friends have walked through. You have to be in the scriptures on your own. You have to be reading and studying and wrestling with what God has said and who he is and how that applies to your life and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you so that the truth gets in you and starts to transform you inwardly. You must be in time 
with the Lord yourself studying the scriptures. You have to spend time praying and have the Lord work in and through your life. But you also can't do it alone. You have to do it with other people. The 12 probably couldn't have done this themselves, but because they stuck together and they stuck with Christ, it made all the difference in the world. And four years ago, when my friend committed suicide, I called some other buddies and I said, I am scared. This is not good. If anybody can commit suicide, if anybody would not commit suicide, it's my friend Roger, and he did. I need people in my life. We got to get together. And they rallied around me. And since then, one of us has lost a son, and a couple of us have lost jobs, and a few others have gone through some deep troubles in their marriage. But together, we've held one another up. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't know if I need that right now. Well, listen, if you don't need to be carried right now in your faith, then you need to be carrying someone else. We need one another. And there's times when they're carrying me and then I'm carrying them and it just works because we're in it together as a body. And we've stayed together. You need a group of people who you can travel through life with to serve together. They'll bring strength in the times of difficulty and you can bring strength to them. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this life in Christ. And Lord, we know that you are not who we imagine you to be, that you are so much more I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see you for who you really are, that you would lift our gaze so that we can see you in the fullness of your glory, that you would give us eyes of faith, that through, though our expectations be one thing, you can be another. And we thank you that you can be the Passover lamb that brings eternal life and hope in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.